0: Listener warning. This episode contains references to traditional marketing, sexy billboards, and farmer-led posses. I also use my pitchman voice. Listener discretion is advised. This is Ann Arbor Stories. I'm Rich Reddy. The shrill, biting, staccato whine of a chainsaw pierces the cold night air. Thud. Another billboard falls to the ground along a highway in southern Michigan. That was the lead of an AP story that first ran on April 7th, 1971. Below the headline, Billboard Bandits Terrorize Highways, which itself appeared below the photograph of a toppled billboard in a field somewhere in Michigan. Its wood legs cut cleanly off at the shins, The story of the Billboard Bandits ran in newspapers across the country, from San Francisco to Sarasota. Quote, Since February 1st, at least 75 billboards have dropped by state roadsides, victims of what a highway department spokesman has dubbed the Billboard Bandits. I imagine it's ecologists, says Captain William Holland of the Washtenaw County Sheriff's Department. An estimated 167 billboards in all cut, chopped, and chainsawed along highways throughout Michigan, mostly in the vicinity of Ann Arbor. Ecotage, a portmanteau of eco and sabotage, is a softer word than ecoterrorism. But they're essentially the same thing. Before the Billboard Bandit struck southeast Michigan, ecotage was already a tactic being used by radical environmentalists to get attention for environmental issues and strike a blow against those sullying the earth. Pioneers like The Fox in Chicago, who plugged smokestacks and dumped raw sewage on the desks of Fortune 500 CEOs. That led to other acts of sabotage, like billboarding, which we're talking about right now, and the formation of groups like the Earth Liberation Front, which tried to stop wanton destruction of the environment by employing arson, pipe bombs, and tree spiking. That's putting metal spikes in trees to damage blades and machines used to chop them down. In the case of the billboard bandits, police and local government officials actually didn't have a problem with most of these billboards being chopped down. A federal law established in 1966 governed billboard use along US highways. Michigan passed its own billboard law, which was pretty vague and conflicted with the federal law, creating confusion about which billboards were illegal and which were legal, setting up difficult communications and lengthy court battles. It was super annoying to inform the owner of the property that the billboard on their land was in violation of the law. But if you couldn't find the owner of the land, well, you could contact the company who sold ads on the billboard if they picked up the phone. When cases were finally settled, the state didn't have the money or manpower to remove the billboards properly. So they yawned on their wooden stilts, leering at traffic passing by. The billboard bandits had it much easier. They didn't care how far from the highway the billboard stood or if the actual business the billboard was advertising was within a certain distance from the brick and mortar location. Legal, illegal, they chopped them all down. Not everyone thought the billboard bandits were awesome. Farmers who rented land along highways didn't want to lose the supplemental income and one was quoted as saying, those little do-gooder kids, I needed those signs to shade the cows. To protect these side hustles farmers formed posses to patrol their pastures at night, keeping a lookout for the Billboard Bandits. Mrs. Leonard Spooner of Revis Junction, about 10 miles north of Jackson near US-127, formed her own little posse and struck dirt one night. Along with her son and brother, she captured a Michigan Daily reporter and cameraman at gunpoint after the pair were among a small group lurking on her land. The newsmen were accompanying the Billboard Bandits on one of their nighttime raids, and the group had chopped down four billboards before Mrs. Spooner and her posse happened upon them. The bandits fled into the night. The press stayed. State police charged Michigan Daily reporter Jonathan Miller and photographer Andy Sachs as accomplices in what the left-leaning Ann Arbor Sun called, quote, the righteous elimination of countless unsightly billboards dotting the highways around Ann Arbor. But police didn't have much of a case and released the pair. But not before pulling Miller's press pass for what they called unprofessional conduct. Police got another crack at the bandits when a tip led them to an Ann Arbor teen's car, in which they found a hatchet, a chainsaw, and maps of Washtenaw, Jackson, and Livingston counties. Six boys were singled out as being the Billboard bandits, including the president of the senior class at Huron High School, a member of the Huron High Student Council, and the star of the Huron debate team, who was particularly adept at arguing about anti-pollution programs. The group spoke with the New York Times, calling themselves the Midnight Skulkers, and fancying themselves militant ecologists in a crusade to rid Michigan highways of billboards that they considered illegal and unsightly. Quote, highway advertising is done to extremes, one of the bandits said, it's an insult to drive along and see this blight. We're trying to provoke state officials into doing something they did not seem willing to do otherwise. The students pled not guilty, and it's unclear if they were ever formally charged, convicted, or found innocent. What is known is that the violence against billboards didn't cease. Inside the city limits, Ann Arbor has had its own battles with signage a local ordinance regulating signs was adopted in 1966, which tried to limit the size, form, and function of all signs within Ann Arbor's borders. Not just business signs, a church was cited because its name was too large on the side of its brick wall. Eventually, fed-up business owners appealed the ordinance to the Michigan Supreme Court, which struck down the Ann Arbor Sign Ordinance for being an unreasonable exercise in police power. But what about the actual ads on the signs and billboards. Well, above the Main Street Party Store at the corner of Main and Ann Streets, there still to this day looms a giant billboard perched on the roof. Sometimes it shills for Plum Market, sometimes for the U of M Credit Union, and once, for a stretch of 12 years, it promoted the smooth drinkability of Canadian black velvet whiskey. Canadian Black Velvet was initially known as Black Label, but after the original distiller sampled the first batch back in 1951, he changed the name to Black Velvet to reflect its uncommon velvety taste and smoothness. Using crystal clear Canadian water, plus the finest rye grains and corn, Canadian Black Velvet Whiskey is painstakingly distilled, blended at birth, and put up in premium oak barrels to gently mature. (coughs) Sorry. (laughs) The people of Ann Arbor didn't have a problem with the smooth, velvety taste of Canadian black velvet whiskey. What some did take issue with was the hand-painted blonde woman in the slinky black gown looking down from the billboard with a, quote, come-hither look in her eyes, next to the tagline, Feel the Velvet Canadian. Police were called to the main party store at 2.20 a.m. on March 7, 1985 responding to an anonymous tip of vandals defacing the billboard. When they arrived, they saw black, white, and red paint all over the billboard, along with words like sexist, and objects never women forever, and rise, along Venus symbols everywhere. Black paint had been used to smear the woman, the text on the billboard, and the hand-painted bottle of velvety sweet whiskey. A search of the surrounding area turned up a car idling in a nearby parking structure with its lights on. When officers approached, two women stepped out, covered in black, white, and red paint. The women invoked their right to remain silent and were arrested on the spot. Charged with causing one to $2,000 of damage to the billboard were Jennifer Akferat and Mary Jane Oil, both 21. A jury of four men and two women were selected for the trial. This jury included a mother of eight, a gay rights activist, a Lutheran minister, and a man who had had three of his cars stolen in the last year. The courtroom on Main Street looked out on the actual billboard in question. The trial lasted two days, and the jury needed just one hour to deliberate before delivering the verdict. Both women were found guilty of malicious destruction and sentenced to $180 worth of fines and 72 hours of community service. The vandalism didn't end there. The Canadian Black Velvet billboard was hit periodically with paint, requiring the company who owned it, Central Advertising, to regularly clean it up. Mike Love, manager of the main party store, said all the hubbub around the billboard helped sales of Canadian Black Velvet skyrocket. Quote The idiots messing it up didn't realize it helped our sales. As far as I'm concerned, someone in the crowd was working for Black Velvet. Finally, After a dozen years of that come-hither look staring down Main Street, the Canadian black velvet woman was wiped out for good, replaced by an ad for Ann Arbor's own WIQB Rock 103. And that was the last time anyone in Ann Arbor complained about billboards or signs, and they lived happily ever after. The end. Ann Arbor Stories is presented by Rumblepack Media in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. This episode was written and read by me, Rich Reddy, with sound engineering by Brian Peters. Thanks again to the AADL and their archive staff who continue to do the work of a thousand digitizing old newspaper clippings and photos from Ann Arbor's past. See for yourself at oldnews.aadl.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ann Arbor Stories or email us at annarborstories at gmail.com and yell at me for missing a lot of deadlines. Thanks again for listening.